0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 175, and we're going to talk about something actually pretty important, and that is how unsafe your van is. That's right, the van you built, the van you're thinking of building, it could kill you. <laughs> and yes, that's very clickbaity. Uh We're also going to talk about a UFO sighting, because that seems to be in the news lately. Is it safe to cook your food directly from the can? We'll talk about that too. And we'll finally have a review of different devices that cool just your bed instead of your whole van, like Nick asked me to do. So folks, welcome back. Thank you for being here. This is the podcast Built to Go, and if you're watching this on YouTube, you're watching a recording of me doing the podcast, and that's all there is to it. So let's just jump right into this here. People have sent me a video, a lot of people have sent me this video, by Project of Science. That's the name of the channel. I'll have a link in the show notes, and it's a pretty eye-opening video let's say it's a 17 18 minute long video of someone going over the remnants of a self-built ram promaster camper van that was t-boned basically somebody ran a red light smashed right into the side of them and flipped the van over and they were fine the passengers were fine nobody was seriously injured so that's good but we can learn an awful lot about what they found when they looked at the wreckage. First off, the Promaster, being a Euro-style van, is a unibody design. That's how all modern vans are. The only ones that really aren't unibody these days are the Chevy Express and the Ford Econoline, but again, they don't really make those as vans anymore. Every other van is unibody, and that just means that the body is the frame. You don't have a separate frame with a body on it that's bolted on. That's the old way of doing vans. And one of the big differences in that is how they respond in accidents. The unibody design is actually much safer because they figured out a long time ago that you want the energy of a collision to go into the vehicle And not into the bodies (laughs) so we have airbags and that's all fine and good and the airbags did go off in this crash but only the side airbags not the front airbags but the van itself absorbed a ton of the energy and it did that by deforming by crushing you may have heard of crush zones those are zones that basically absorb a lot of energy so that your body doesn't and the van did that very very well if you look at the early part of the video they go over what happened to the van and the side is smashed in but the penetration of the vehicle into the van is less than a foot it's actually not that bad it's not like the car went right into the van and when the van tipped over it deformed but it deformed in ways that left the passenger compartment intact now after the accident the driver and passenger couldn't get out of the van. The van was on its side, the passenger side door for some reason they couldn't open, and the driver side door was on the pavement, so they couldn't open that. They also couldn't get into the back of the van because first off, the slider wouldn't have worked. And the back of the van, which we will talk about a lot, was in shambles. So with the help of some passerbys, they actually smashed out the windshield and crawled through that to get out of the van. I want to preface this by saying two things. First off, these guys actually built a very strong van. If you look at the way they built things, they used real two by fours, entire two by fours, and used pocket screws and to me it looks like a very high quality build especially for someone's first time building a van so anything i say from here on out is not a dig at the people who built this van i think they did an excellent job the other part and this is almost the entirety of my point is i'm not an engineer you're not an engineer either and this is what we need to talk about This entire channel is basically devoted to people who build out their own vans. I mean, we talk about other things too. RVs are welcome. Trailers are welcome. Anything built by Winnebago, whatever, that's all welcome as well. But a lot of us are folks that have built out our own van or want to build out our own van, and we're looking for tips and tricks on how to do these things. But we don't talk about safety all that much. We may talk about fire safety, but we don't talk about accident safety. And folks, unless you're an engineer and you've studied this stuff for a while, you probably can't wrap your brain around the different forces that go on in the back of a van during an accident. What I'm saying to you is that if you self-build your van, you have created an inherently unsafe situation. Now, I'm not saying don't do this. I've done it. <laughs> I have built out two vans i'm probably going to do another one and guys my vans aren't even near the top of high quality or anything like that if any of my vans are in an accident the back is just going to completely come apart i use ikea furniture sometimes and i can tell you no ikea furniture is going to survive a major accident okay so i'm not trying to be a hypocrite here i'm just trying to get you to realize that this thing we're doing has risks and this video from Project of Science really shows what that is. I have in the past talked about how Class C and Class B RVs are safer than Class As. The difference is that a Class B RV is just a van that's built out kind of like we're doing without all the engineering and certification and all that. A Class C is an RV that has a van front and a built RV back. And a Class A is built completely. So if you think of your classic Winnebago, that is built on a frame. So there's actually no automotive body work at all and i've often said that class c and class b vans are more safe and that's because the automotive part is very carefully regulated and very highly engineered to keep you safe while the rv part has much much lower standards but they have standards (laughs) the rvia in, in the united states has a whole bunch of guidelines on how to properly and safely build an rv and even with that If you look at any videos or pictures of RVs and accidents, you will instantly see that they disintegrate. (laughs) They completely fall apart. The people up front hopefully are kept safe. But the back of those things, I mean, honestly, if you look at the way they're constructed, they're usually thin pieces of wood or fiberglass or something else with some foam in the middle. There's nothing terribly structurally strong there. So even vehicles, campers built by engineers, are unsafe in an accident. And what we're doing, holy cow, I I, again, not trying to criticize anybody's builds. But if you haven't taken the time to consider two scenarios, you're putting yourself in harm's way, perhaps unnecessarily. The first scenario you have to consider is what happens if you slam on the brakes, you come around a corner and boom, there's a toddler in the middle of the road. It's not impossible. It happens. You slam on your brakes. What happens? Well, you are in your seat with your seatbelt on, so, and you're pushing against a brake, so you're, you're pretty secure. But everything in your back is suddenly going to start moving at whatever speed you were traveling at forward. So if you were doing 60 miles an hour, imagine everything in the back of your rig jumping forward at 60 miles an hour. What would happen to it? Well, i can tell you what would happen in one case uh, my toyota mini cruiser rv i had a similar situation to that i don't exactly remember why i had to do an emergency stop but i did and i slammed on the brakes and then felt Bong! as a tea kettle flew off the stove all the way the entire length of the rv and bonked me in the back of the head and if you're asking me where that kettle was why didn't i secure it It was in a closed and latched cabinet. (laughs) The latch had come loose, and the tea kettle, which thankfully was empty, flew all the way and hit me in the back of the head while I was driving. And that was in an RVIA certified rig not something i had built myself you know the furniture stayed in place everything was fine but that might not be the case if you're just using some ikea furniture that you screwed into the floor there's no part of ikea furniture that's meant to suddenly travel at 60 miles per hour so consider that now i want you to consider what would happen if your camper was on its roof because that can happen too Now, a lot of these are designed. It'd be very hard to get them on the roof, but it, it can happen. It absolutely can happen. Is everything in your rig going to stay where it is if your rig's on the roof? I would guess probably not. I would think some of it would move. I know, I'm thinking about my NV200. My bed wasn't attached to anything. It completely would have just gone wherever. My cabinets were attached to the walls and the floor, but again, they were IKEA cabinets. They were never designed to be flipped upside down. Plus, they contained the batteries and the water, heavy things. So what would they have done inside the cabinets? Uh, It would have been bad. It absolutely would have been a bad thing. Again, folks, I'm not trying to dissuade you from doing this. I'm just trying to point out the fact that we're not engineers. We are somehow skirting the laws here and creating unsafe vehicles for the passengers. I'm happy to hear your comments on this and such, but I really think that's the situation we're in, and I'm going to keep doing it. I I am willing to take that risk, and I, I just think you should know the risks if you're going to as well. Now, remembering that I'm not an engineer and I'm not even a very experienced van builder or anything like that, I'm going to give you some suggestions on what you can do to help keep safe. And again, these are just suggestions from a nobody on the internet, so you should take them for what they're worth. One of the very first things that you can do to make your van safer is to have a bulkhead. Have a partition between the driving area and the back yes cargo vans are sold without this right so what's safe about that nothing (laughs) nothing imagine if you rent a u-haul van that doesn't have a partition and you put your stuff in it and you slam on the brakes well that stuff's gonna fly forwards you're supposed to strap it down but we can't really do that so build a bulkhead in my nv 200 i had a bulkhead when i bought the van but it took up too much space and i took it out that was a compromise i was willing to take with that bulkhead in place the van would have been a really safe vehicle because anything in the back could have just fallen apart. Even the batteries or whatever, they would not have gotten through that bulkhead because it was a super strong thing. So you can buy bulkheads for just about any van, and you can often find them for free because so many people like me take them out. (laughs) So consider that i know people like to turn their seats around and to add that extra space in the back i totally get that but when you do that you're making your van just a little bit less safe i have an ambulance now which i am building out but let's face it this vehicle was built out when i bought it it had cabinets it had seats it had walls it had a bulkhead And it was built by professionals. And it is actually certified as an ambulance, which is a higher level of certification than even the RVIA gives you. So let me tell you about how they built this thing so that maybe you can use some of this in your rig. But I'll tell you what, it wasn't cheap and it wasn't easy the bulkhead is made of three-quarter inch plywood it is not a metal bulkhead but it's still very very strong the sliding door is just a door on sliders Uh, it's actually on drawer slides so that isn't all that strong but where the passenger and driver are anything that was going to come to get you would have to go through three-quarter inches of plywood so that seems pretty strong to me all the cabinetry is built to a very very high standard it's all glued and screwed it's super strong But what's really impressive is what it's attached to. On the floor, there's 3 quarter inch marine ply, but it's bolted. Through the bottom of the van, there's actually, I mean, very big, very high tensile steel bolts are holding that piece of plywood to the floor. And they went to such an effort to do this that they actually dropped the fuel tank to bolt this in properly, which I mean, that's above and beyond as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, it's definitely going to make it safer because folks, if you just stick a piece of plywood in as your floor and you're in an accident, it isn't going to stay on the floor. (laughs) It's going to go wherever gravity and momentum take it and then on the walls there was aluminum framing that was attached to another piece of plywood at the top of the van so basically i've got a cage back there that is very securely attached to the van and if the ambulance rolled the way the cabinets are designed and the way the furniture was designed everything would stay exactly where it was Now, of course, I'm screwing that up, right? (laughs) As I build this out into my standards of what I want to live in the thing, I'm removing their very nice and heavily built cabinets and putting in my own, sometimes IKEA cabinets. But you get the idea. So, folks, I'm not trying to scare anybody. Again, I encourage you to build out your own van. Just be aware that you're probably not an engineer. If you are an engineer, You're probably not an automotive engineer. You probably don't understand the forces that are at play here because they're not intuitive. Watch this video and see what happens to this really well-built van, and then use that to inform your decisions going forward. You can make a safer van if you just take a little bit of this into consideration, but ultimately we're never going to have a completely safe vehicle, and that's just part of van life. Talk. So if that wasn't controversial enough, and, and please, I welcome your comments. You can comment on the YouTube video or send me an email at jeff at built to go.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. I will be happy to take into account what you have to say and uh, respond in kind. But uh, I just got into a little bit of a heated discussion. <laughs> That's a pun you just don't know yet. About cooking soup. <laughs> Seems like a pretty simple topic. But ever since I was a kid i have always not always but sometimes anyway just cook the soup in the can because as a kid i was like i'm taking this can and i'm opening it and i'm dumping the soup in a pot and then i'm heating it in the pot what's the difference between a can and a pot i mean it's a metal container used to heat something and the can I don't know if you guys know this, but canning, the process of canning, actually cooks what's inside it. Everything that's in a can is cooked so this can was used for cooking so why do i have to clean this pot why, why am i using it and even today um, when i'm in the van i will just cook soup in the can i will typically take a bigger can like progresso or something like that i'll take off the lid i won't remove the paper label and i'll just cook it right on top of the gas burner whether it be one of those portable butane stoves or the ones i have built in and uh, you know what it works fine basically i will cook it until it starts to bubble because that means some of it's starting to boil. And to me that says, okay, some of this is at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius. That's warm enough because it's already cooked. I'm not cooking it. You don't have to cook canned food. It's already cooked. So I'm just warming it up. Intuitively, you might think, well, that's crazy. Of course, the paper's gonna catch on fire, but it doesn't, it doesn't. In fact, if you take a paper cup and fill it with water and put it into a fire, set it right in the coals the paper won't burn because the paper is going to be the same temperature as the contents and that's going to take time to get up over 212 degrees fahrenheit or 100 degrees celsius and yeah okay you add salt it's a little higher but we're talking about a five percent difference here not a lot the paper cup can't it can't because of the laws of thermodynamics get hotter than its contents that's just physics now some of you say right but you're heating up the can heating up the can is going to cause it to give off nickel or bpa some other nasty chemical and that's going to get in your food and then you're going to get sick i have done as much research as i know how to do on this i mean i'm not a scientist i am not a food scientist and i'm not a metallurgist and I, you know again random guy on the internet here's the data i have come up with <laughs> I have learned that modern cans don't have BPA in them, so we don't have to worry about that. They are coated with something called food grade epoxy. If you look inside a can, you'll see this kind of yellow inside. That yellow stuff is food grade epoxy, and it's to seal the can so that metals won't leach into the food, giving it that tinny taste, which as a kid, I remember if you opened a can of food, it would taste like the can. That's not really true anymore. Food grade epoxy is safe food safe according to regulators up until 140 degrees celsius which is 140 degrees celsius is 284 degrees fahrenheit so 284 degrees fahrenheit and and guess what if your food isn't boiling it can't be that hot and if the food isn't that hot the can can't be that hot and i have never Not once had the paper burn on the outside of the soup can because the paper is touching the metal and the metal is touching the food, and the temperature of the food is setting the temperature for everything else. Now, if you heat up an empty can, oh, yeah, you can easily get over that temperature, and who knows what will happen. We know that Teflon pans, when they're superheated, will give off a gas that's especially fatal to birds. I think I may have lost birds because I cleaned an oven once. So, again, not a scientist not not a nutritionist none of those things i am not telling you that it's safe to do this what i'm telling you is that i often cook my soup directly in the can and based on the things i have seen it seems perfectly safe to me the biggest risk is that you're going to burn yourself if you just grab the can (laughs) so i use a potholder that's how i handle that and then i eat it right out of the can And I don't notice any difference in taste. I haven't noticed any health effects over the 52 years or so I've been doing this. And I know there are lots of other stories out there of people who have had bad things happen. And you can find studies that show that heating a can gives off all kinds of things. But I haven't found any studies that say that heating a can with its contents in it actually affects the contents. So, this is either a great tip on how you can save some dishes in your van, or it's the stupidest thing you've ever heard, and why would anyone take that risk when they can just as easily pour it into a pot? You get to decide! (laughs) Product review! Okay, so Nick asked me to do this. Often talked about subject cooling, especially now. uh, It's very difficult to cool a van, right? So we've talked about different ways you can do air conditioning. And basically, they all come down to you have to spend a whole lot of money, thousands of dollars, if you want to have air conditioning in the back of your van without shore power or a gas power generator. I'm not going to rehash that. But what if, what if you could just cool your bed? Now, there are two commercial products I know of Well, there's a bunch of different products, but there's two different ways to cool a bed in your home. One is a product that one of the brands is called BedJet, And it's basically a fan with a hose, and you put the hose under the covers. (laughs) And so you get in there, and you're under the covers, but there's air circulation under there, and it helps cool you off at night. It sounds kind of fun Uh, i've never tried it i've never tried any of these things so i can't really give you a solid review on them but i want to talk about them anyway because you know could a bedjet work in your van i think so the fan isn't going to draw that much power either you're going to be able to convert it to 12 volts or you'll have to use an inverter but i think it would be a fairly modest investment and yeah you could totally have a fan blow under your covers in the van and that might help keep you cool especially if you're one of those people who can't sleep without the covers on you know if you're kind of like the monsters are going to come out of the bed and grab my feet, you know, which I totally get. I understand that. That's legit. Yeah, I think a bedjet could totally help keep you cool. And if anyone tries it, I would love to hear about your experience. But Nick actually wanted me to talk about a different way to do it that's a little bit more complex. There are a bunch of products out there called Chill Sleep or Uler or Doc Pro. There's all these companies that make this device that is basically a box that attaches to two hoses and those hoses attach to a pad. And you put that pad under your sheets and those pads are cool and what's happening is that there's cooled water going through those pads and those that cooled water picks up heat from your body and then goes back into this device and that heat's removed and thus you've got a circuit of just cool water going completely into your bed all the time it actually sounds great i looked up the amperage wasn't that bad it was 140 watts or so manageable in a van that could possibly work and the reports i've seen from people using them in their homes they're mixed but not bad a lot of people say it really works but i don't think it's a good candidate for van life, and I'm going to give you some reasons why. First off, your home is not the same as a van. People who are using these things are using them because they have their temperature set at 75. It's a couple. One of the couple is happy with that. The other isn't. They want it cooler, and they use this to bring 75 down to 72, something like that. One of the big reasons I don't think this thing works is because of the technology they use. What's in that box is a Peltier device. This is a solid-state heat exchanger. It's basically a plate with some electronics on it. And one side of the plate gets hot, and one side of the plate gets cold. That's it. It's how those really inexpensive, quote-unquote, refrigerators work that you find at truck stops. Those 12-volt plug-in refrigerators that are like 50 bucks they use the same thing. Do they work? Yeah. One side's hot, one side's cool. And you can actually just switch the voltage, and then it'll reverse. If you notice on those really cheap fridges, you can also use them to heat soup. But those devices do not work the way a compressor fridge works or an air conditioner that has a compressor. Where's the heat going? Oh yeah, the heat's coming out of that box. So you basically are in your bed and you've got a heater next to you. That little box is going to fill your van with all the heat it takes from your bed. Now if you've got a vent on, that vent, the heat will go out, etc. But I don't think these things are going to have the efficiency necessary to cool down your bed substantially. And they're expensive. They're hundreds of dollars in most cases. So uh, I I don't think they're going to work. But no, I haven't tried them. I don't like the idea that they're a Peltier device. I just don't think those are suitable for van life. But heck, I would be happy to try it. So Uller, if you're out there and you'd like to send me one, I will absolutely try it. But based on my hands-off product review, I don't think they're a good solution for van life which which is kind of a shame i really wish this was the solution to all of you folks out in arizona trying to sleep in your vans i don't know how you're doing it (laughs) tales from the road okay this is a little ironic and it's kind of timely but uh, i used to live in vermont and i would have to go down to fort lauderdale Fairly often, every couple of weeks. And Fort Lauderdale uh, was the headquarters of the James Randi Educational Foundation. The James Randi Educational Foundation was an organization dedicated to critical thinking. We would try to educate people on how to think critically and how to discern truth from untruth. And UFOs was a thing that came up fairly often. Uh, People would ask us, Are UFOs real? And we would say, Yes. Absolutely. There are definitely unidentified flying objects that people don't know what they are. UFOs are real. Then the next question would be, but are there aliens in them? And we would say, well, the chances of life existing in the universe other than ours on other planets is actually pretty good. However, Laws of physics, again, state that the chance of life from other galaxies or other solar systems actually visiting us on Earth seems nearly impossible because of the limit of the speed of light. So our provisional conclusion is that UFOs are something, but they're almost certainly not extraterrestrials visiting Earth. And that may be a little bit different than what you heard from Congress lately, but hey, that was our take on it, and uh, and I stand by that. Except this one time (laughs) when I was in Newburgh, New York. Newburgh, New York uh, is kind of near White Plains. They have an, an airport that used to fly to Fort Lauderdale. I don't think they still do. There was a JetBlue flight nonstop. From Newburgh to Fort Lauderdale, and I flew it fairly often. It was a nice little plane, easy airport to deal with, and it was actually easier for me to drive to there from Burlington than to fly from Burlington and change planes. So I did this fairly often. The only problem is it was usually super early in the morning. This was like the first flight of the day, it was like at 5 30 in the morning. So one day, it was fairly cold. I remember I got on the plane, and being the first flight, the plane hadn't warmed up. So I got my window seat, and I'm kind of snuggling in there, and you know, the the thrill of flying has long since passed. It's just routine for me, but I notice there's a light in the sky. I'm like, okay, whatever. And I'm kind of watching the light as we're taking off, and you know we're heading to cruising altitude. And then the light goes straight up, like vroom, like faster than any object I've ever seen. And then it stops. I mean, it just goes zoop, stops, jump, jump. It's like it jumped. Now, no aircraft I've ever heard of can do that. Even a helicopter has to gradually change altitude. It can't jump. And then I noticed it changing speed. It went up and then it started to move horizontally. And as I'm watching this, boom! it jumped back down again. Now I know i know for a certainty that there is no aircraft that can perform these maneuvers i'm watching this thing real time no screens involved i'm looking out the window at this light as it's doing this and i i have no explanation for it i was literally seeing an unidentified flying object and now i was going down to florida to the jref i'm gonna have to say um guys I need some help explaining this. (laughs) Fortunately, I woke up a little bit and I, I figured out what exactly I was seeing. Have you figured it out? It's okay if you haven't. Because when you are in these situations, they're usually because you're lacking context. And even if you're in the context, you might have missed a part of it. So I gave you all the clues you needed to figure out what this was the answer is what i saw was one of the most commonly most commonly misidentified things as a ufo it was venus i was seeing venus so it wasn't even a flying object it was an orbiting object not of not of us of the sun but why was it moving like that It wasn't. It wasn't moving. The plane was moving, of course. We were doing a series of banking maneuvers to get onto our flight path south. So what was moving was the plane and the window. (laughs) So I was looking out the window, and that's what was moving up and down. And the left and right horizontal stuff was merely us turning and also changing speed. The point of the thing is, is that the object wasn't flying. We were and I had failed to put that context into my intuition about what was going on. Now, if I hadn't taken the time to figure out what this was, if I had just been excited about seeing UFO, I would have stopped my thought process right there and said, oh, wow, I've seen a UFO. I'm one of the special ones. I now can say I saw a UFO, aliens came to visit. You know, you get it. When you have an experience like this, it's easy to feel special, and then you really don't want that feeling to go away. What I did get out of it was that for about 30 seconds, I had a UFO sighting. And now that I've explained it, I think it's probably an IFO sighting or maybe an IOO sighting or uh, it's just Venus. A place to visit. (laughs) This is a... This is a place that may only mean anything to me, but I'm going to share it anyway because it's kind of cute. My family moved to Salem, Massachusetts when I was three in 1970. And uh, we were, moved into a brand new house. It had been an empty lot before, and it was in a kind of an older neighborhood. In fact, the street was named Ord Street, O-R-D, and it was named after a Civil War hero, so it was probably named in the 1870s or something like that. And all the houses were that old. Some of them were actually much older. I mean, there's houses in Salem from the 17th century. That's the 1600s, folks. Ours wasn't that old, but it was in a part of the city that was very old. And um, Ord Street connects to Aborn Street, but Aborn Street connects to boston street and as you can tell from the name boston street was the road to boston and it had been since at least the 1620s so this is a very old road but that doesn't mean they weren't up on some modern things and one of those modern things was that in the 50s or 60s i'm not sure of the exact date somebody built an ice cream stand now this ice cream stand looks very much like a dairy queen but apparently the original owners just kind of bought it as a kit and the youtube folks will actually get to see a picture of it but it's not a Dairy Queen it never was a Dairy Queen we didn't really have Dairy Queens in that area there was one kind of far away in Middleton so what do you call an ice cream stand in Salem well there were several and a lot of them were just named after the families but these entrepreneurs thought hmm it's not a Dairy Queen it's a Dairy Witch And yes, folks, I spent a good portion of my youth getting ice cream treats from the Dairy Witch. (laughs) Now, in the 50s, 60s, when car culture was really becoming a thing, these overly elaborate signs became very popular and sure enough dairy witch built one and what they built was this sign that was basically a giant soft serve ice cream cone uh, i mean 20 feet tall very very large with a ladder going up to the top of the cone and a stereotypical witch climbing the ladder and putting sprinkles on the cone now we didn't call them sprinkles we called them jimmies that's a massachusetts thing but dairy witch I loved Dairy Witch, and I'm thrilled to say that Dairy Witch is still there. It's not owned by the same family anymore, That and the family that I knew wasn't even the original owner. They bought it from the original owner a couple years after it was started, and they owned it for years and years and years and years, but man, the memories I have of this place... And Honestly, yes, I grew up there. Yes, it's the food I'm used to. They have really, really good ice cream. They're very creative with what they do with it. I mean, they're not attached to any chains or anything. So one of the things they used to have, and sadly they don't have anymore, was the Alaskan shake a Sunday. That was my favorite thing. And they would take a milkshake, a Massachusetts milkshake, which is a whole other topic. But in, in Massachusetts, milkshakes don't have ice cream in them, or at least they didn't when I was a kid. It's just shaking up chocolate milk. It's a milkshake. Uh, they would take that and then build a sundae on top of it so you'd have a floating sundae that was awesome so anyway if you happen to go to salem massachusetts and i'm actually thinking about organizing a trip there in 2024 and all you van life folks are certainly going to be invited (laughs) we're definitely going to have a stop at dairy we're going to have to because uh it it's one of my favorite things that's still there from my childhood Resource recommendation. So you probably can guess what I'm going to give you as a resource recommendation here. If you're serious about building the safest van possible, if you want to build your van to RV standards well, you can get those standards. You can get them at rvia.org. Go to the website anyway. Have a look around. But you can pay, You have to pay for the standards. They cost money. And you can get everything that the professional RV builders have at their disposal to learn things like plumbing tolerances and what type of gas lines to use and how strong things need to be. If you're very, very serious about this, you can go through all this stuff and you will have all the information that all the professional builders have. Now, that's a daunting task. It's a lot of stuff. And you can actually, if you're going to do this as if you're going to be like a van builder as a job and you want to RVIA certify your van, you can totally do this, but you're going to have to do it according to these guidelines. I think it's interesting just to look through and see and kind of question what you're doing, if it makes sense. And uh, heck, I'm offering it to you here. So there's a link in the show notes, but it's just rvia.org and it's probably a good idea for you to take a look at it. So folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 175. I absolutely appreciate each and every one of you. If you would like to support this channel, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash built to go and buy me a some diesel. I know I still haven't fixed it. (laughs) Music as always is by Simon Wag. And until next time, remember the words of Paul LaForest, who said, if safety is a joke, then death is the punchline.